Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Todd Henry about his new book, Assimilating Soul, Japanese Rule and the Politics of Public Space in Colonial Korea, 1910-1945. This came out in 2014 with the University of California Press. Now, this book looks at what's called assimilation practices, kinds, spaces of assimilation in the context of Japanese colonial rule of Korea in the 20th century, and then into the post-colonial period, and even into the future, as you'll find out at the end of the interview. Todd does this by looking at and by really changing the way we think of the history of assimilation, so assimilation to Japanese rule. He says early on in the book that he wants to disaggregate colonial authority by looking at how different forms of assimilation, spiritual, material, civic, worked on the grounds and in the public spaces of colonial society in Korea. Now, it reframes previous work on Japanese assimilation in two important ways. It sort of widens or opens up um, what assimilation means in colonial practice, and it looks at the underpinnings of some really transformative, very specific colonial projects. He talks about his approach early on in the book as a kind of ethnographic history or an ethnography of colonial projects, um, which is a really interesting, I think, way into this mode of doing history. And the chapters after the introduction and the first um, sort of set up introductory chapter sequentially look at different kinds of projects and kinds of assimilation that form the backbone of this story. So we look at shrines, we look at exhibitions, um, palace grounds, government buildings. We look at sanitation and neighborhood life, the space of the household. Um, Finally, the book looks at the ways that the spatiality of the city is transformed in the late 1930s as a result of um, the end of the war and the occupation of U.S. troops in Korea. And then at the very end, um, Todd points us outward toward the future, um, toward much uh, later, at least much later from my perspective, like 15, 20 years from now in the 21st century um, to think about projects that are now ongoing um, that are kind of the afterlives of the sorts of assimilation projects he talks about in the book um, and the ways that those might unfold in coming years. So it's a really fascinating book. Um, It's got lots in here for people interested in space and spatiality, in public health, um, in modern Japan and architecture, and in forms of everyday life that really create create um, the textured spaces and times of history. So it was really a pleasure to talk with him, um, and I hope you have a chance to read the book, and I hope you also enjoy the interview. Thanks very much for listening. I'm here to talk with Todd Henry about his new book, Assimilating Soul. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Todd, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So, Todd, could you start us off by saying a little bit about how you came to work on the history of modern Korea? Sure. That's actually a really interesting question for me um, and reflects my own sort of personal journey, um, which I would say is a sort of series of serendipitous uh, encounters. I was actually... Uh, quite interested as uh, a high school student in in Latin America through uh, friends I had met. Uh, I went to live in Argentina, 
uh, and uh, came to meet uh, some exchange students from uh, Japan, uh, which led me actually to study uh, Japanese things uh, in college, uh, and then some time living in um, Osaka, which is one of the cities where many Koreans immigrated uh, during uh, the colonial period, got me very interested in thinking about uh, why those uh, individuals, Koreans, were living in a Japanese city, uh, why Japanese uh, looked at Koreans uh, in a particular way, and that got me thinking and very interested in studying about the history of uh, Japanese colonialism in, in Korea. So it was through that kind of serendipitous uh, life path, uh, which uh, took me to the study of Korea. Great. So the book that we're talking about today explores the forms of space, of spatialization of colonial Keijo, and this is mm-hmm. a city that's equivalent to present-day Seoul. As, mm-hmm. a, as a way of getting at the forms of assimilation, and we'll talk about what that means, of colonial Korean subjects under Japanese rule. So how did you come to decide to focus on this particular topic? Yeah, well, I mentioned to you before my interest in uh, or my my path to, to study uh, Korea, which which included a close connection um, with Japan, and so I, I was interested in picking a, a topic um, and a frame where I could study uh, Korea's interactions within a colonial environment uh, with Japan, uh, and so. Uh, the city for me presented a really interesting opportunity to look at um, uh, forms of colonialism that not only involve state and government power, but also involve the presence of Japanese settlers. And one of the unique and interesting things about Japanese colonialism is the overwhelmingly urban nature uh, of Japan's uh, settlement project. So among the various cities that Japanese uh, ended up immigrating uh, to, Seoul, of course, was one of the most uh, important for business opportunities. And as I mentioned before, also because it was the center of political authority. So uh, as I was reading things uh, in graduate school, um, I'm remembering now, for example, uh, Mary Louise uh, Pratt's book uh, uh, on the contact zone. I thought of the city, in particular the Seoul, as a perfect sort of laboratory in which to explore uh, and analyze the relationship between uh, Koreans uh, who are now colonized and Japanese uh, colonial power, both governmental and then the power that's emanating from the settler community, uh, which takes root in Korea from uh, the late 19th century through the end of the colonial period in 1945. Great. It's one of the really interesting things that comes out of the experience of um hosting podcasts and in a couple of different fields is that you start to be able to get a sense of kind of emerging trends. And your comment just now about the city as a laboratory is really striking to me because um, several of the books that I'm reading now, but in very, very different kinds of fields, are looking at the importance of different kinds of built spaces and sort of Mm -hmm. um, made spaces. So cities, ships, ports as laboratories um, in Mm -hmm. a way that I think is really fascinating for reshaping how we think about the history of experiment um, and the history of laboratory as a concept in its space. So I I love that way of phrasing it. Mm -hmm. 
So the book started out as a dissertation and then you transformed mm-hmm. it into a monograph. So can you talk a little bit about that process? And specifically, were there any kind of major ways that the ways you were thinking about the project or shaping the project or conceptualizing the project changed um, from one form to another? Yeah, when I was writing the dissertation, I was really trying to um, find a way to foreground a a narrative that could work uh, in and through space. So um, as historians, we're trained to think primarily about uh, change over time, how things develop, uh, what kind of continuities we find, what kind of discontinuities we find. Uh, And I found that a lot of these ways of thinking and ways of writing sort of followed a very strictly chronological or temporal axis. And so in the book, um, and as I started it in the dissertation, I tried to somehow not throw away time, uh, but try to disrupt it or integrate it more closely with a discussion of space. So in the dissertation and in the book as well, I tried to foreground um, uh, different forms of, uh, of space, uh, micro space, uh, macro space, uh, spiritual space, material space, find a, a way of, uh, talking about space, giving it a certain kind of, um, vocabulary. So that was, um, something that I was very interested in, uh, from the dissertation um, forward. Um, As I wrote the book, um, I realized that I could perhaps emphasize that even more than I did in the dissertation. In the dissertation, actually, I had um, eight chapters in a very long and sort of clumsy dissertation that looked at sort of space, uh, one particular space in two different time periods. And I thought that for the book that I could sort of emphasize the spatial dimension even more uh, by devoting uh, one sort of compressed chap- chapter to each of the spaces that I discuss uh, in the dissertation. So the spiritual spaces of uh, Namsan's uh, Shinto shrine look at uh, modernization under colonialism through the lens of the public space of the palace grounds, look at the projects of transforming uh the hygienic and sanitary conditions of the city through neighborhood campaigns. Uh, So one of the projects that I did for the book was to compress those uh, spaces that had two chapters into one. And then the other thing that I wanted to do is, if you notice in the dissertation, I end sort of my story in uh, the mid-1930s before the outbreak uh, of, of the war and the final sort of stage of uh, the colonial period when colonized uh, Koreans of a of, of wide variety uh, of uh, 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 society were mobilized uh, to fight on behalf uh, of the Japanese empire. So I wanted to include um, a concluding chapter that talked uh, at, in some length about what happened to the space of the city. How was it transformed under uh, a wartime regime? So, I compressed eight chapters into four and left some room for that concluding chapter, as well as um, an epilogue. Um, I I wanted to not finish the book in 1937 or even 1945, but 
to give a sense of the way in which the spaces that emerged during the colonial period, the public spaces, are um, still very much uh, a, a, an important part of a national life in what becomes um, South Korea, Seoul, the capital of South Korea. And so I try to gesture at the way uh, that the public spaces that I deal with during the colonial period are reworked, are refashioned, are still a sort of um, battleground, um, an intensely sort of loaded place uh, for very similar kinds of things that I found during the colonial period, that is national celebrations, political protests, um, and give a sort of uh, longer duration uh, of the story than just um, the colonial period. So those are some of the sort of main transformations I made to to the book um, as it began as a dissertation. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You've just um, talked about ways that you've expanded the temporality of the project and uh, thought about the structure in terms of space. In the Mm -hmm. introduction, you also spend a bit of time talking about the ways that you're actually, you know, within the time period you're you're looking at, are Mm -hmm. treating the periodization really importantly differently from Mm -hmm. how other studies of this period have treated it. So would you talk about maybe some of the most important important elements of that um, way that you're re-periodizing mm-hmm. this, this um, span of time as well. Yeah, so as you may know, in the historiography of Korea, um, you know, there's a very, uh, still, I think, very strong uh, sense of a, a kind of um, national story uh, that runs uh, something uh, like this. Korea, uh, uh, an independent uh, uh kingdom, uh, empire in its the later stages of the Chosun dynasty is annexed and colonized by Japan in 1910. So there's a huge break uh, that separates the period of a, an autonomous Korean state and a state that's colonized by Japan in 1910. The next sort of uh, transitional moment comes in 1919 with the March 1st uprising, a large uh, nationwide uprising that seeks uh, independence for Korea is violently uh, put down uh, by the Japanese and leads to uh, a period uh, when Unlike the first decade of colonial rule, which was uh, ruled uh, under uh, what's known as uh, military rule, the second and uh, third decades of the colonial period witness a new kind of uh, form of rule uh, known as cultural rule uh, in which certain elements of Korean society, particularly those that are willing to work within the confines of colonialism and work with the colonial state, are allowed to uh, organize, uh, to speak Uh, to congregate, whereas those uh, left-leaning elements which are most critical of the colonial state and of its uh, program of uh, capital development um, are um, crushed. Um, And so, you know, while I find those... uh, that storyline and the kind of temporal uh, markers of that storyline certainly relevant and useful. Um, I think that they have... um, perhaps unnecessary blinded us to thinking about other kinds of story stories that might in fact uh, interrupt a kind of totalizing narrative that seeks to pit the Korean nation against the colonizing nation of Japan. So if you look at uh, my story, which takes place uh, in a city, um, you find um, different kinds of 
of, of markers. Um, so I find that it takes the colonial state quite a lot of time to, in fact, consolidate um, its authority. The first five years of the colonial period, the colonial state is, again, trying to put down uh, all kinds of uprisings and forms of opposition to the colonial state. And it's really only around 1915, I think, that a sort of minimal infrastructure um, is put into uh, place. Uh, and then I find that 1925 is also uh, an important turning point, uh, at least in terms of the history of the city. Uh, and it's important, I think, just simply by looking at the kind of infrastructure of the city, which all sort of uh, begins to sort of take root around uh, this year, particularly in terms of the city's monumental uh, architecture. So, for example, the city hall building, uh, the new Seoul train station, and perhaps most important in my story, uh, the unveiling of uh, Korea Shrine at, atop Namsan, uh, is all uh, taking place around this year, uh, 1925. So it's around that time that the sort of infrastructure uh, to begin to mobilize and transform Koreans uh, in ways that's conducive towards Japanese rule only sort of takes place, I think, uh, around 1925. And then the other thing that I try to take into consideration when thinking about the periodization uh, is not only the Japanese uh, colonial state, the government uh, authority uh, of colonial Korea, but also to think about um, the settler population and settlers and their interests um, having an important role to play in the direction of, of, of colonialism. Uh, so it's only really around the 1920s, again, after the March 1st uh, movement, uh, but uh, which takes uh, a little more time to get going, do the settlers' interests, for example, in, as regards uh, involving or including some Korean elements uh, into the Shinto uh, uh, community of Seoul, uh, do the settlers' uh, interests begin to match up with those uh, of the government um, general? So these are kind of small ways uh, in which I try to sort of force us to rethink how we tell stories about the colonial period. I'm not suggesting that these uh, markers 1915, 1925 should necessarily overturn uh, the narratives that we've been given in the past, but just uh, make us think more critically about other kinds of stories that we might tell, focusing not necessarily on sort of national narratives, but narratives around the ways that colonialism develops in particular um, spaces, in particular uh, contexts. Great. Thank you so much. And I, I think in this way, this is one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about it. If the book is really doing something very similar for time as it is for space mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, really asking us to think um, openly and critically about the way we parcel up and, and um, the way hist in history uh, units of time emerge um, just as much as uh, you're showing that for space. So speaking of space, the title mm -hmm. is Assimilating Soul, and assimilation, as you introduce in chapter one, is a term that officials used to describe this kind of re-spatialization of the city. 
So the first chapter looks at how the government general attempted to transform the city of Hanyang or Huangsong into a Japanese colonial capital. Now, one of the things that they try to do um, in this early stage of the story, and this is one of many, many, many cases in the book where we see a kind of um, uneasy fit of intentions and what actually happens um, Mm -hmm. in creating these spaces, but they try to impose a kind of grid and rotary system of roads to enable the movement and circulation of people and of goods throughout the capital. Mm-hmm. They succeeded, though, as you show here, only partially, and they only reshaped a very small part of the infrastructure in this city. As you put it here in one of many um, kind of organic bodily metaphors that we'll mm-hmm. see throughout the book, they only reached the city's main arteries. They didn't reach the capillaries of daily life. And you and others um, that you quote in the book are, are just really wonderfully deploying these very um, visceral metaphors in ways that I think are just fantastic. Okay, so can you start us off by talking about this process? Um, what are why do these efforts to reshape the city not um, wind their way into the capillaries of daily life? And what's important about that um, failure, for uh, if, if we might call it that, for us to understand in order to understand the larger argument that you're making in this part of the book with this example? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this brings up sort of, I'll, I think I'll start with um, the question of how I approach this notion of um, assimilation. Um, I, I, I wanted to find a way uh, to uh, extend our understanding of assimilation uh, to include things that um, were not only sort of distinctly uh, a, a Japanese. So t- people typically describe assimilation uh, as involving uh, language reform, involving Koreans, uh, for example, learning in uh, common schools, or you could call them primary schools, education uh, about the Japanese imperial house, uh, only providing Koreans with the kind of rudimentary knowledge that, uh, you know, is important to their own subjugation um, as colonized peoples. While I find those elements uh, of assimilation uh, important and perhaps even central, I also found that um, not only did officials and pundits talk about assimilation in other terms, that is in terms not of a spiritual assimilation per se, but of what they called material uh, assimilation, that there were various forms in which assimilation sort of took root. Um, and so what I tried to do was to show how assimilation takes root, not simply in discourse, but through the actual physical material and spatial transformation of, of, of the city. So on the level of, um, you know, urban planning, uh, we see attempts, for example, for the first time to integrate and to try to connect the largely Japanese-dominated part of the city, which uh, is in the southern half of Seoul, and the the uh, Korean-populated uh, portions of the city in the northern part of the city. So many of the kind of uh, thoroughfares, the arterial infrastructure that's created in the city during the first decade uh, is sort of aimed at connecting these two parts of the city, which operate and look very differently. So in many Korean accounts of the city, we, we hear about a kind of divided city, almost a kind of instance of urban apartheid, you might say. And yet at the same time, 
there is some limited attempts to try to integrate um, both parts of those uh, uh, neighborhoods into one kind of um, organic uh, whole. And you mentioned the kind of organic terminology that's used uh, in urban planning. Uh, planners recognize that the kind of uh, colonial body that they're dealing with uh, is very uneven. Um, and in fact, implicitly uh, involves a certain kind of uh, neglect. So some people might react to the book and say, well, there really wasn't a lot of assimilation going on. Uh, Koreans were, in fact, neglected. They were ignored. And this is, you know, an instance of uh, not some kind of uh, form of, of colonial benevolence, but, uh, 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 you know, an instance in which uh, the colonizers were, in fact, um, were, in fact, um, disowning or disavowing Koreans. And that's certainly the case. And I think if we look at uh, the city of Seoul, we see these kind, these two kinds of contradictions. On the one hand, there's a gesture made towards superficially including Koreans into all kinds of uh, uh, infra uh, infrastructure in the city at the same time that Koreans are uh, neglected. Um, and so it's these two kind of opposite uh, dimensions of colonial rule. You could, you could call them the kind of glaring uh, neglect and sort of hyperbolic instances of excess. So in the city, you find these sort of beautifully reconstructed thoroughfares, as I mentioned, connecting the north and south parts of the city, as you find on the other side, uh, neighborhoods close to those thoroughfares, largely where Koreans lived, in which the infrastructure, the sanitary conditions are completely dilapidated. Um, and so it's this sort of... Um, juxtaposed, unsettling, uh, unsettled sort of contradiction of colonialism that I'm trying to get at with talking about assimilation here, not necessarily as a, as a kind of foregone conclusion or an idealized um, sort of set of prescriptions, but actually looking at assimilation as some kind of uh, project, as some kind of experiment that is inherently fraught with all kinds of contradictions, all kinds of uh, problems, all kinds of unevennesses. And it's that sort of element that I'm trying to get at uh, here in the, in the chapter about uh, the microspace, the urban planning of the city, but also in terms of the other chapters in which similar dynamics um, are at work. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And we'll talk about some of the um, points of focus for the other chapters as well. And to get us there, um, one of the th other things that's happening here in this early chapter is that the government general is actually building a government general building on mm -hmm. the grounds of what um, of the old Kyongbuk Palace. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that part of the story? Because that winds up being incredibly central to what unfolds afterwards. Right. So I tried to, in this chapter, um, not only talk about urban planning um, per se, but also talk about the urban planning projects as they relate to the other sort of micro spaces that I'll deal with in other um, chapters. So I, I see uh, the the transformation of Kyungbok Palace, the, the palace that was uh, 
the most important uh, uh, grounds uh, for the royal family during uh, the Joseon dynasty, um, becoming the kind of uh, political center of uh, Japanese colonial uh, rule. And as we'll talk about perhaps later uh, in the southern half of the city, Namsan, this area uh, around which many Japanese settlers reside, becomes a sort of uh, spiritual center of the city. And it's along the access connecting these two uh, important sites that we find uh, the most important sort of symbolic thoroughfare of uh, the street. So the urban planning projects, roads, for example, are closely connected to the transformation of um, important public sites uh, like Kyongbok uh, Palace, which is um, uh, quickly targeted uh, as the place upon which the Japanese will uh, put uh, their administrative um, complex. Now, again, as I mentioned, in terms of the periodization, this doesn't come about until 1925 that the building is unveiled. So it's a very long and expensive process of investing an incredible amount of energy and resources uh, into what I would call a process of desacralization. <laughs> that is taking the symbols uh, of the royal house, a royal house that during the final decades uh, of the Choson dynasty, during what's known as the Great Han Empire, uh, Korean officials are trying to um, restore and create as a center for national identity. So it's important to think about uh, what the Japanese do during the first uh, sort of 10 or 15 year uh, period um, as a kind of response to growing uh, official and public nationalism on the part of Koreans. And there's perhaps no better way uh, to sort of both crush that resistance and then uh, call for Koreans to uh, sort of reorient their loyalties away from uh, the Korean monarchy, away from the Korean nation and towards the Japanese empire than to sort of physically transform and physically recreate a public space like Chungbo Palace. So through this process of desacralization, there is, of course, intense uh, forms of violence taking place where uh, palace buildings are destroyed. Uh, room is made for a new uh, colonial government building, uh, which emerges in 1925. And all throughout the, this long 15 year process of creating the new government general building on the grounds of the former desacralized palace is to create certain kinds of events um, that would re-invite uh, Koreans uh, into the space of the empire by hosting um, large uh, industrial ex exhibitions, showing somehow to Koreans uh, that colonialism is um, in, uh, uh, in their own benefit, that they can in fact profit from Japanese um, colonialism. So this is one of the ideologies, the ide ideological projects that takes place in the very space that's desacralized and is ultimately replaced by, uh, by a uh, Japanese government uh, general building. So some of the chapters um, explore um, that process of not only transforming the space through a physical monument, removing the palace uh, and replacing it strategically with a government general building and juxtaposing the old palace, uh, the dilapidated, decrepit palace grounds 
against the new progressive fate of the empire, but to use the grounds of the palace, which are opened up to Koreans for the first time, in fact, during the colonial period um, as a way of sort of softening that very violent process of desacralization uh, by eliciting them, calling them, here I use the word, assimilating them uh, into a project that's clearly uh, run uh, and managed by the Japanese, but in which uh, Koreans are supposed to play um, a subordinated role. And I think that's uh, one of the ways in which colonialism um, seeks to function. It can't simply operate on brute force alone, but has to use other kinds of persuasive uh, forms of subjectification in order to bring at least some Koreans of a certain class uh, into the fold of uh, its empire. Great. Thank you so much. And um, if we have time later, we'll talk a little bit more uh, about those exhibitions, um, which are really interesting and also examples of, again, the kind of limited success of mm-hmm. some of these efforts, which is another really important part of the story. But first, um, you have a chapter that leads us um, from the introduction and the other um, sort of major uh, thing that's being built, right? This shrine, uh, this Shinto shrine complex in Namsan that you mentioned. And chapter two takes us into that really interesting shrine complex um, context. So let's move there. Okay. Now, what happens um, in this part of the book is the... You're showing in this chapter, at least um, from my perspective, right, as one reader, you're showing that the atmosphere of Shinto politics as a result of the very particular use of this space in Namsan becomes increasingly competitive. And that competition takes shape over this kind of um, really interesting tension between two major shrines. One is um, something called the Soul Shrine, mm-hmm. and this is run largely by, uh, it's founded by Japanese settlers in 1898, um, and it is sort of run by uh, Japanese custodians. And then the Korea Shrine, which is unveiled in 1925 and has a very different way of being placed in the space on Namsan and an integrating or not um, local Korean um, colonial residents. So can you take us into what's happening in this part of the book by talking about the these two shrines? What's important for us to and for listeners to understand about the nature and the relationship of these two shrines, given the larger argument here? Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned, this is perhaps uh, one of the most important uh, components, I think, of what it meant to be a Korean um, subject. And I think this is particularly the case uh, and perhaps um, there's been an excessive sort of emphasis and focus uh, on the later uh, stages of colonialism, the last sort of 10 years or so of Japanese colonialism. And as I show later in the book, um, when Namsan becomes a really important sort of mobilizing ground, militarized mobilizing ground for uh, the uh, the inclusion of Koreans for the first time, uh, for example, to become soldiers to fight on behalf of the Japanese Empire. That's, I think, mostly what the shrine is uh, remembered for, um, the ways that the shrines are talked about uh, in Korea, actually, um, itself, uh, is as a kind of uh, mobilizing uh, tool. 
Um, and uh, while I certainly want to emphasize that story, I don't want to create a sort of ahistorical picture of the shrines as being um, that kind of uh, potent or that kind of powerful um, from the get-go. So what I try and do uh, in Chapter 2 is to try to historicize the way in which that shrine complex comes to have a certain kind of um, authority. So here, of course, is where periodization and timing is really important to try to track the kinds of developments uh, that lead us to um, the power that the shrine complex has during the late uh, colonial period. But in this early period, what I find is, as you mentioned, there's this kind of tension between, on the one hand, the settler community, which has been in Seoul since the 1880s, in fact, several decades before colonialism uh, is uh, implanted. And while the settler community was certainly benefiting all the while from uh, colonial protection and colonial privilege, the settlers had created their own kind of outpost, economic um, outpost. Um, and it was very important for the settlers being surrounded by a majority of Koreans who clearly outnumbered them to have a sense of national identity, to have a sense of uh, a kind of spiritual core for their community. And at that spiritual core stood this small, unassuming shrine called Seoul Shrine, which is established in uh, 1898 and which is the most important uh, shrine in Seoul and on Namsan until the establishment of Korea Shrine in 1925. So it's several decades, in fact, almost three decades uh, later that this government shrine is imposed upon uh, the landscape, not only of Seoul, but as the, the, the word tells us, uh, Korea Shrine over the entire uh, uh, peninsula. And so that shrine is aimed at including both uh, Koreans and Japanese, but for the purposes of the settler and Seoul Shrine, Seoul Shrine uh, r remains a kind of exclusive uh, 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 symbol of the settler's own sort of power. So as we move into the colonial period after 1910, the, the government general is without its own shrine and has to rely in a sense on the custodians of this smaller Seoul Shrine to somehow make gestures at uh, including uh, Koreans. If the official government policy uh, uh, of Japanese colonialism is assimilation, then there has to be some kind of at least gestures of including Koreans. So it's this kind of tension I find in the earlier stages of the colonial period between the very exclusive sort of sentiments of the settlers and the nominally inclusive sentiments of the government general um, that get um, that, that kind of meet in the politics uh, of uh, the shrine uh, community. So one way I try to get at this conflict between these two entities uh, is to look, for example, at the festival route of, uh, uh, of uh, Seoul Shrine, which once a year uh, takes the goddess the mythical ancestress of the Japanese nation, Amaterasu, takes her out of Seoul Shrine, puts her into a portable shrine, a mikoshi, and takes her all throughout the city. And I trace that shrine procession as a kind of embodiment 
uh, of the nature of assimilation at this period, in which, in fact, the power of the settlers is actually quite um, dramatic. So if you look at the, the shrine procession um, from the early period of uh, Japanese colonialism, you'll find that it's only during a very brief moment that the procession enters the Korean neighborhoods uh, in the northern part of the city. Most of the time, uh, the festival is traversing uh, the commercial districts of the southern half of the city uh, when where the Japanese themselves live. So you can see through the festival organization and the festival route the kind of predominance uh, that the settler community and Japanese interests have. Um, and it's only with the creation um, several uh, years later of Korea Shrine uh, and the outbreak of the March 1st movement um, that Japanese uh, settlers realize that rather than excluding Koreans, somehow including uh, uh, Koreans into their own shrine is would be a useful way for the settlers to be able to continue to compete with the much more powerful government general. So there's this kind of irony. On the one hand, the government general and the colonial state is there to support and provide a privileged life for Japanese settlers. Yet on the other hand, the leaders of the Japanese settler community don't necessarily like everything that the government general is doing towards them. You have to remember the settlers, like Koreans, are under a kind of um, authoritarian state, a colonial state which also does not provide a lot of um, venues for the expression of their political interests. So within this colonial context, the shrine community is one way in which the settlers can continue to voice um, their interests. And so it's only as we move into the 1920s and in this kind of conflicted space of uh, the shrine community that settlers uh, come to imagine that including Koreans into their own spiritual community uh, can be a useful way for them to uh, compete with the government uh, general. And in fact, over time, we see the settlers becoming some of the most aggressive, you would call them assimilationists. So, for example, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, deciding, well, if assimilation is our official policy, then why, for example, at Korea Shrine, do you have no native deities installed? And many sort of pundits uh, who criticize the policy of assimilation say, you know, if your policy is assimilation, how is it possible that you can that you could exclude Japanese deities from the shrine community? So this is one of the things, in fact, that settlers uh, pursue quite actively uh, is to install a Korean uh, deity at their own um, soul shrine, subordinate him but include him into a, um, a larger pantheon of deities, which over time uh, comes to include a much sort of greater um, uh, swath of Korean uh, uh, elements. So again, in this chapter, we see here that we need to really explore what are the politics of assimilation? It's not to me that assimilation either did, did exist or didn't exist, but we look, have to look at its sort of experimental nature, the projects of assimilation, who's promoting them and how, how are they contested? And only through that kind of exploration do we get a better sense of how assimilation came to function, um, how it was contested, what was its grip 
what were its sort of excesses, what were its failures. I want to kind of map what assimilation looks like. And I, I find that picking a space like the shrine community is a really useful way to, a useful way to kind of see that uh, working out um, uh, in, a, in a kind of ethnographic, ethnographic way. So if that chapter, chapter two, looks at spiritual assimilation, the next chapter focuses on what you call material assimilation. And it mm-hmm. does this through the example of the former Kyongbok Palace grounds that we talked about earlier. Now, mm-hmm. these grounds, as, as we mentioned before, were the site of the Governor General building, but they were also the site of two major expositions held in the colonial period. And you take us into, um, in detail, uh, a smaller exhibition that preceded the in 1907, but then these two major ones in 1915 and in 1929. Um, we could easily spend the rest of the time just talking about these expositions. So, mm-hmm. um, But rather than doing that, what I'd like to do is just take us into um, what seems to be a really important moment in terms of spatialization and re-spatialization that happens when you talk about the 1929 exposition. Mm-hmm. Now, this exposition... Um, comes after what you call a turning point in the history of colonial Korea in 1925. And this exposition um, is a way of impressing visitors with displays of colonial progress, as you put it, introducing the the world to goods of Korean culture and transforming the consciousness of the people who would visit this exhibition through an exposure to a kind of industrial education. Now, this was happening in part through a way of re-spatializing the Kyungbuk Palace in a really interesting way. You talk Mm -hmm. about um, how this, uh, among other things, the axis of the palace... Right was shifted away from the original north-south orientation and toward an east-west orientation. Now, for listeners, this might not seem to be a big deal, but it's actually a huge deal. And when we, mm-hmm. we come to the very end of the book, in the conclusion or the epilogue, um, you talk about ways that recently that access is try- they're trying to put back that access to what it originally was. So let's talk about this. Um, how is or what are the for you the most interesting and important ways that this palace was re-spatialized as a result of these and for these exhibitions, and what's the big deal with these axes of orientation? So the main reason why the I, I, I began to to speak of the city's uh, transformation in terms of the placement of the government general building, which doesn't uh, come to be until 1925, and so. In fact, it was to provide a sort of direct uh, view of the government general building that large portions of Kyungbo Palace uh, were destroyed. Uh, and this includes the most important uh, gate to the front of the palace, uh, the Kwanga Gate. So it's during this period of the installation of the, uh, uh, of the government general building and the opening of the 1929 exposition that the gate is moved to the eastern side of the palace. So it's largely aimed at a direct view of the government general so that all who visit the city, either Koreans who visit the city from the countryside or Western visitors who visit Korea from the United States and Europe can see the kind of uh, ways in which Japanese colonialism has uh, transformed uh, uh, the city. Um, And again, in very violent um, ways. So 
I think we need to think of this this kind of spatialization both as a kind of destruction, a very violent destruction, a destruction against which I want to mention many Korean nationalists uh, protested quite vociferously, and and an important kind of symbolic uh, reconstruction. So in the context of the 1929 exposition, this involves using that uh, repositioned gate to the eastern side of the palace and creating a completely new access um, that goes from east to west. So you walk through the Kyungbok Palace, newly repositioned Kyungbok Palace gate, uh, in the eastern side of the palace, and you walk from east to west into this new uh, event grounds, exposition grounds uh, for the 1929 um, event. And it's along this corridor that, in fact, that a kind of reconstructed uh, fake or faux Korean architecture uh, is reestablished as a way of uh, enticing uh, Japanese visitors uh, to come to the peninsula, to invest in the peninsula. This is a kind of exotic uh, display of Koreanness, not by Koreans themselves, but um, by uh, the Japanese. So all of these forms of architectural repositioning of the kinds of architectural forms that the exposition ground takes, I think are important ways uh, of understanding um, how colonialism uh, functions. And then also to look at the various responses of the individuals to the extent we can glean these from um, uh, uh, memoirs, um, from literature, to try to recreate some of the experiences of the individuals who would have uh, gone to that place. So I try to survey in that chapter how individuals respond to this newly recreated space. I mentioned there are certain sort of high-ranking nationalist elites who write of their accounts going to the exposition and who are completely disappointed um, by both what's displayed at the exposition, largely Korea as an agricultural appendage of an industrial Japan, and bemoaning and bewailing the fact that Korea, despite the rhetoric of assimilation, is treated as a sort of second-class citizen, bemoan the fact that the palace has been recreated in this kind of very fake and artificial way, even as the Japanese are claiming that it represents and includes Korea. So there, there are those kinds of responses. And then there are other kinds of responses that weren't necessarily taking place in terms of a nationalist critique, but engaging with the kinds of new forms of sounds and sights um, of the exposition grounds themselves. So, for example, I focus on one individual that I found in the archive, the so-called Kiss Girl, uh, women who were employed at the exposition uh, to uh, ostensibly to show uh, visitors around the exposition grounds, but in fact turn the exposition ground a kind of, as you mentioned, a kind of pedagogical classroom uh, of industrial education, turn that that kind of ideological mission around into um, an erotic uh, marketplace. So I try to emphasize that although there's certainly a, a heavy dose, a heavy element of sort of repositioning and respatialization from above, we also should consider all of the kinds of um, 
aspirations and dreams and uh, responses and reactions of individuals who would have passed through those gates and who would have um, imagined and thought about that space uh, in very different ways, depending on their political and social position within um, colonial society. So I tried to give some portraits uh, of those responses uh, to uh, the reconstructed palace grounds. Great. Thank you so much. And, and mentioning the Kiss Girls also gives me a chance to mention for listeners who might not otherwise know that this is happening in the book, there are the Kiss Girls um, in Chapter 3 are one of several moments um, throughout the book where there is a really interesting history of Korean women under colonial rule that emerges. Mm-hmm. So in the next chapter as well, which we won't have um, too much time to talk in detail about, but that I want to signal for listeners, um, Chapter 4 uh, looks at civic assimilation by looking specifically at sanitation and neighborhood life. And among the things that emerged from that chapter, it's a really wonderful chapter for in, in terms of the history of public health, the history of medicine, the history of sanitation, the history of, again, kind of organic metaphors of the city and the sort of the connections between individual bodies and collective bodies of the city and then of the nation. But in this chapter, one of the things that's happening is that household hygiene becomes really important. Um, And Korean women are made uh, responsible in a way for trying or or for um, maintaining a a kind of hygiene, a sort of hygienic modernity within the space of the household in a really interesting way in this chapter. So um, listeners or readers, um, hopefully listeners will become readers, will also find a really interesting treatment of the importance of police enforcement of sanitary regulations in this chapter. They'll find an account of the kinds of resistance to this police enforcement that come out um, in this chapter, and also a history of epidemics, a history of um, uh, sort of the epithets like uh, the Japanese pundits calling Keijo Korea's shit capital, uh, the uh, diseased city. And so there's a lot going on in that chapter, even though we won't have a chance to talk in detail about it. That's a really wonderfully rich archive for readers who are interested in histories of hygiene and health and public health. And I mention also um, with the... Responsibility of Korean women in that chapter for the household because the household actually is a super important site of everyday spatialization and everyday assimilation. And this continues to be the case in the fifth chapter. So the fifth chapter takes us into what you call imperial subjectification. It argues that the onset of the Asia-Pacific War in the late 1930s transformed the city's spatiality, and there are several ways that this happens. You take us into um, an exhibition, um, which again sort of visualizes um, the sort of individual and national bodies in a way that relates them to each other, that attempts to visualize now Korean and Japanese bodies in a way that brings them more into dialogue for the purpose of the the greater war effort. And you talk about the ways that this was and wasn't successful, um, again, um, in in many ways in this chapter. But you also bring us into the space of the household by looking in this chapter at the ways that Shinto shrines begin penetrating Korean homes through the circulation of household altars and Issei talismans. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a really important example, again, of the kind of household level everyday practices of assimilation and spatialization that are so important to the book. So could you talk a little bit about that um, element of what's happening in terms of the larger um, points that you're making in this last part of the book? 
Right. So I would say, you know, up until the late colonial period, those final years uh, before Japan is defeated, actually the space of the home is largely targeted, as you mentioned, from Chapter 4 as an object of surveillance. Uh, uh, you know, Japanese had an idea that um, the diseases that were emanating uh, into the city were coming from Korean neighborhoods, were coming from unsan- the unsanitary practices of uh, Koreans. This was causing a lot of deaths on the part uh, of Japanese and a lot of resources going into the city to keep the city clean and and, and hygienic. So uh, Koreans were an object of police surveillance, and they were also to become subjects of their own sort of self-regulation through uh, campaigns uh, aimed at hygienic modernity. Um, And so there's a kind of interesting shift that I find um, while those uh, emphasis on hygienic modernity continues into the wartime years, um, the the shift uh, in terms of the home as an object of of control or as a subject of sort of self-regulation becomes reoriented once again around spiritual matters. That is, as Japan uh, is going to war in an ever-expanding empire, it's increasingly important that Koreans uh, become uh, involved in that um, war effort um, in all kinds of different ways um, uh, for uh, wives to support and, in fact, to give up their husbands, their brothers, their uncles, to the wartime effort um, as soldiers. And so it becomes important perhaps for the first time um, where spiritual assimilation is not some kind of sort of idealized uh, project or experiment, but the experiment is in fact actualized at the moment of war. And so this necessitates, I argue, a completely new sort of uh, 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 conception of space and induces new projects of, of, of rule. So in chapter five, I tried to show how what had largely been a public culture of Shinto that took place either by visiting a shrine site at Namsan or which took place in the public infrastructure of the city by, for example, a festival circulating the streets, that that public culture of Shinto now becomes um, a private matter uh, as uh, small Shinto, miniature Shinto shrines, as Issei tal- talismans, as the public culture of shrines begin to permeate um, the home. And again, as I've emphasized throughout, in a very uneven and not necessarily highly successful way. I think this chapter shows the kind of operational limits of uh, of mobilization here of making Koreans into imperial subjects by analyzing how far Shinto is able to penetrate. And in this case, it's the penetration of the home, which is which is highly uneven and um, largely, I think, um, a failure. I tried to give some examples that sort of signal its failure uh, by, for example, looking at how uh, what Koreans do with miniature shrines, even if they're in the home. So I found some records talking about uh, Koreans who, you know, using the the, the the miniature shrine in their home that should be the object an object of reverence to store, you know, their household items. Uh, and they're, of course, pet penalized uh, and criticized for these kinds of um, practices. But nonetheless, as a kind of experiment of fusing the 
the public culture of Shinto onto the space of the home, I find that that's a very important sort of spatial transformation that occurs during um, the wartime period and is tied into the kind of empire-wide culture of Shinto uh, that is connected through shrines all throughout uh, the empire. So I also tried to give some examples of how not only uh, women in the household, but also school children who are going to uh, Japanese uh, educational institutions become some of the most important actors to travel, for example, the sacred sites of the empire and to try to impart that imperial culture uh, back to their families uh, and, and their friends. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Todd. Um, so there's also an epilogue, and we won't have time to really talk about it, but I just want to, again, signal for listeners some of the really interesting things happening here. So in this epilogue, you look at what's happening in the post-colonial remaking of the public spaces of the city. And in this case, what we have is a real transformation in the spatializing of the city with the presence of the U.S. Army forces in Korea. So the government general um, gets uh, destroyed gets uh, unmade and as a result there's a question of how to define and remake the spaces of the city in the context of this post-colony you talk about the emergence of a Choson renaissance um, and also as we kind of gestured at earlier in our conversation the destroying of the government general building and the attempt to in its place create a restored Kyungbok palace that actually I think you mentioned here won't be completed until at least 2030 if not later so there's a really interesting movement at the end of the book um, into the late 20th century and actually beyond into the future. Um, so I just want to uh, signal that and mark that for listeners. Um, it's a really interesting part of the book. So, Todd, there's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. I mean, the book is extraordinarily full of not just um, really interesting conceptual and theoretical tools for us to use to think with time and space, but also some really great um, stories and really great um, archival moments and discussions of you know ethnographic history and Foucault and all kinds of wonderful things. Given that, and given that you know we can't possibly be comprehensive, um, mm-hmm. but is there anything still that's uh, that you feel is particularly important that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, but that you'd like to mention for our listeners? Bob, I, I just suppose you know I, I just briefly you know uh, uh, you know t- just mentioned the the epilogue and and you know you originally asked about the creation and the transformation of the dissertation into, into the book. So uh, you know I think that's a really Im- important piece of uh, of the story, and again, uh, it's a way of showing how um, you know history is a way of looking at the. At the a way of looking at, at, at the present. So history is not uh, dead. Uh, even when a Shinto shrine is destroyed, um, that history is not completely dead, but it lives on in certain ways um, in, in the present. Um, and so I wanted to really show how, you know, any visitor who would go to Seoul and see the grounds of Kyungbok Palace by reading the book actually has, I think, I would hope a much better sense about how uh, history and how space is very much um, a living thing, a thing that doesn't simply die, but is layered with all kinds of uh, meanings uh, in, in the present. So I think that's one of the things I wanted to try to leave uh, you and the, and the readers uh, with. Fantastic. So now that the book is out, and congratulations mm-hmm. on the book. Thank you. Uh, what's next for you? What projects are you working on right now? And what can we hope to read in the future? 
So you had mentioned um, uh, in a, a few moments ago about uh, the presence of, of, of women uh, in the book. And one of the things I had originally thought I would address in the book, um, oftentimes visitors to Seoul and other colonial cities would say, often Western visitors would say, the two things that distinguish uh, Japanese colonial cities uh, is the presence of Shinto shrines and the presence of red light districts or sex districts. So one of the things I thought I would sort of address in, uh, in the book uh, was the importance of sex work uh, to uh, colonialism. So what I'm currently working on actually sort of extends the story of colonialism into the post-colony of, of South Korea. And I'm especially looking at uh, the history of uh, Korean um, sexuality. So I've been spending um, quite a lot of time sort of uh, locating uh, and uh, sort of trying to find materials that talk about um, the history of uh, Korean sexuality, which I'm finding that, you know, in contrast to uh, the the. Uh, sort of received or popular or almost you could say mythical notions of Korea as being hyper conservative that sex and sexuality was a very important part as I mentioned not only of the colonial period but also what I'm working on right now the, the post-colony so I'm focusing uh, uh, most of my efforts now on looking at um, tabloid journalism and popular journals and trying to analyze the meanings of sex and sexuality within the context of a post-colonial society, a society uh, uh, that is placed under authoritarian um, rule, that's placed under a program of compressed uh, modernization and what sex and sexuality can tell us about um, the histories that have largely sort of left out um, the, the the practices uh, uh, of uh, both normative and non-normative um, bodies in Korean history. Fantastic. Well, that sounds great too. So good luck with that. And thank you so much for making the time to talk, Todd. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Carla. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.